Another day, another dollar makes you wonder where your money went. Hi, folks. This is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough. Or even if they don't dictate it, it's almost always during my 50-mile commute between Arlington and Frisco, Texas. Today is, what is today? Today is Tuesday, May the 19th, 2009. It won't really matter with today's subject because it will be a timeless subject. I'm going to talk to you today about, oh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine overlooked permaculture options for permanent crops that will provide food for you and your family for decades, dare I say even generations, some of them. And these are things that uh, that grow well in the United States. We have sources to obtain them here in the United States, but I would say the majority of Americans have never even heard of them. And I'm going to have to not do my 80-mile-an-hour podcast today, folks, at least through Arlington and Grand Prairie. It looks like they're running safety blitzes and pulling people over and writing lots of tickets. I guess they're getting ready for Memorial Day weekend, and they need to make a little money. So, as always, remember, this podcast is uh, broadcast from my personal mobile studio, uh, my 2006.5 Jetta Diesel TDI. Yesterday it wasn't, but uh, nine times out of, uh, I'd say 99 times out of 100, we've been doing this on the road. So anyway, let's uh, let's do a little bit of house cleaning before I get on with it. Uh, the sad house cleaning, I want to mention this all week long for those who maybe don't check the forum out often. The Region 5 bug out, camp out, get together has been canceled. Uh, Dan Tanner would put the whole thing together, and it's probably our fault that we let one man put the whole thing together. Um, he has a surgery coming up for his wife that they have got to get done now, or it's going to be a lot longer before they can get it done. Uh, wives come before campouts. So uh, Dan's going to go take care of that. And the gentleman named Brian that was going to give us the property has ended up having to work that weekend. And one way or another, I guess we're not going to have the property available uh, without Dan or Brian. So uh, that's understandable as well. It sucks. I suggest we start looking at doing smaller, uh, less lead time get-togethers. Let's just do some fun stuff and start to form some community. And I think it will make doing these big, uh, big events a lot easier. Maybe we're a bit early to be doing this. We don't have enough active people to, uh, to hold one together is what it seems like. So let's, uh, let's see what we can do at like a, a, you know, a very small region. Use the regional boards to find each other, but like a North Texas get-together, uh, you know, a West Arkansas get-together, some stuff like that. Maybe it's just a fishing trip here or there. I was thinking about going fishing this weekend down on the coast once this got canceled. Uh, I made a decision. I'm going to stay home with the wife, and we're going to work on a lot of the stuff that we've been doing, and I'm going to get a lot of things done for the show that I've been wanting to get done with that extra day off. We're not going to travel at all since this has happened this way. Just remember, folks, everything happens for a reason, and there's a reason for this. Uh, Other uh, house cleaning real quick, like, do you think you get more than 25 cents in value out of the Survival Podcast? Consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You'll get exclusive content available only to members. 
members. Uh, make sure you do uh, patronize our advertisers whenever you can. Advertise through the day, SOE Tactical Gear. SOE Tactical Gear and our other advertisers are uh, proudly displayed in the right-hand margin of our website at the survivalpodcast.com. Unlike most websites, you do not just get to be on the survivalpodcast.com because you pay. We do charge them a fee to be there, but they have to go through our moderators ad council, uh, which is all the moderators on the forum. If more than two of my moderators uh, say no to an advertiser, they are not approved, and uh, that means that they've been checked out six ways from Sunday before those folks are willing to give their stamp of approval, and I have no veto or override powers. If an advertiser wants to be on the site and my mods say no, doesn't get to be there. So this is an official endorsement of every advertiser you'll see on the site going forward. Alright, with that said, let's go ahead and get into today's topic. I don't want to eat too much up with house cleaning today. Um, what I decided to do is, is try to do more shows on growing food. And specifically growing sustainable food, sustainable agriculture, true permaculture techniques, uh, especially going through the summer. It's where everybody's mind is. It's real hot in the, in the, in the world. There's not a lot of talk to talk about with politics right now because the idiots are going to do what the idiots are going to do. Um, and there's not an election anytime soon, so nobody's really scared. Uh, people are posturing for next year's election, but right now this year they're going to run rampant and there's only so much we can do. So why beat that stick? The economy, the economy is the dead horse that's trying to get up. People keep beating it. Um, but there's not a lot to say about it right at the present moment. I'm sure I'll come up with something in the next couple of weeks on the economy for you. Swine flu has petered out into uh, really much, pretty much a non-event. I am concerned about what it may do this flu season, and it may do nothing this flu season. We don't really know yet, uh, but it's not really worth talking about. So a lot of the things that we typically talk about are kind of in a, in a limbo state right now. But Making sure that you're building a sustainable lifestyle is never in a limbo state. So rather than sit around and bitch about how hard it is to find uh, 45 ACP ammo, uh, let's go ahead and talk about something we can do that we have the ability to do right now and uh, some different ways of doing that. Now, everything that I'm going to give you today is what I call a permanent crop, or not even what I call a permanent crop, what I guess anybody would call a permanent crop, meaning that even if it's not permanent, it doesn't last forever, it lasts for a very, very long time. Many of them actually self-reproduce over time and spread over time, so even though the mother plant, so to speak, or the grandmother plant, so to speak, may eventually die off, the prodigy will still be there, and that's true with many of the berries uh, that we're going to talk about today and the shrub bush type plants that we're talking about today, and even some of the trees. So the other thing I wanted to do with today, though, is I wanted to maybe expose you to some plants that maybe you'd never heard of, that have unique uses. Some of them are actually native to the United States, and gardeners across the world are growing them, and look at them as exotic species, and they think they're just the most wonderful thing in the world, and yet we sit here with them in our own backyard, and we think that they're an exotic species because we've never heard of them. Uh, And there are some that... There are some that, uh, you know, we maybe have heard of, but we don't really understand their, their value for food. Uh, in other words, we, most people have heard of a dogwood tree, but they, they don't know that there's actually species of dogwoods that produce an edible fruit that's actually high-yielding, small, compact plant. We'll talk about that in a second, but that's one example. So I wanted all of these to be, to be something that I would think that if you walked up to the average person on the street and said, hey, uh, have you ever heard of, with the exception of one, 90% or more would probably say, no, nah, I never heard of that. I didn't know, you know, have you ever purchased XYZ at the supermarket? What? 
That's that's what I was looking for here. I also wanted them to be things that were highly disease and pest resistant, things that you could pretty much plant as long as you gave them good growing soil and you gave them um, you know sufficient sunlight and exposure and sufficient water supply. They pretty much would take care of themselves. You could prune them, you could you know dote on them if you wanted to, but pretty much they were bulletproof plants that would just freaking grow. All right. So let's talk about them, and let's start out with the first one that I had already mentioned as an example, and that's an edible dogwood. Uh, they're also called a cornelian cherry, and these are a great little tree. If, if you've ever seen pictures of flowering dogwoods, they're just absolutely stunning, beautiful trees uh, in the springtime when the uh, the flowers are on them and, and the, the leaves are off, and they're, they're just gorgeous plants. So plenty of people plant dogwood trees, but very few people realize there's actually a variety of dogwood that gives you all that attractive nature, but also produces something edible. And there's uh, there's quite a few different varieties available of Cornelian cherry or edible dogwood. You can find them by Googling either term on the uh, Internet. They're a great little tree. They only grow 8 to 10 feet. And you can easily maintain them in the 6 to 8 foot range if you uh, take on a little bit of pruning and things like that. And that will actually make them grow outward more if you'll kind of cap that growth rate somewhere in the 7 foot range. Uh, again, like I said, they are considered an edible form of dogwood. They are absolutely pest free. There, there's, there just ain't nothing that'll eat them, chew them up, uh, bother them. They just grow and uh, take care of themselves year after year after year. They're relatively quick bearing. Uh, you get your little trees in the uh, mail or from a local nursery, wherever you can find them. You take good care of them for two to three years, and within two to three years, they're actually producing fruit for you. They are very hardy. Um, I can't tell you the exact temperature. I don't have that memorized. I do know that these things will go into zone 4 at least. So you can grow them right into USDA zone 4. That's a pretty hardy uh, perennial tree. So even though there's something you never heard of, you may think of them as uh, being something that's kind of exotic. No problems growing them in in the majority of the country. Even a lot of the northern climates toward the coast are are well above zone 4. You harvest these guys around August to September, and once uh, you won't get this in your you know your first bearing year, but once they are mature and they're they're growing well, you're looking in five six years. Your harvest per tree, thirty to forty pounds of fruit. And these are kind of like a, a mix in flavor between like cherry and apple. They're good for a lot of things. You can eat you straight out eating them out of hand. They make a really good dried fruit. Uh, they're a great juice producer for uh, wine adjuncts or jam adjuncts or things. I don't know you'd really want to make a jam or a wine completely from them, but they're an interesting little adjunct to add to them. Uh, this is something I'm going to definitely plant up in Arkansas. And one thing I'm thinking about all, all already with this is I bet you it makes a really cool beer. Uh, blended with kind of a light wheat malt, uh, I bet that a Cornelian Cherry Ale would be something unique. You know, that's something that almost nobody had ever heard of before, and I bet you it would just be absolutely freaking dynamite. So, Cornelian Cherry, check that one out. Um, they are It's a good idea on these to get at least two varieties for some cross-pollination. They will generally produce without a partner, but if you do two varieties, you get increased yield and it'll push it up in that 30, 40 pound range. And again, I think that if you wanted something gorgeous for a front yard uh, running out the, uh, the uh, property line, 
did a, a stand of these things, which just be absolutely breathtaking in both the spring when they're in blossom, uh, and the you know around the time of August, September when all the fruits on them, and then when the when the foliage changes, whenever that happens in your region, uh, they also have a lot of great color. So, and even standing, there's uh, there's what they call contorted varieties of them that standing bare in the winter are still very attractive. So you get it. I mean, there's just so much going for this plant. It's amazing that Americans haven't kind of embraced this. This is a plant out of Russia, Siberia as well, and I think a lot of these plants are, and not just the ones I'm talking about today, but a lot of the new plants that are becoming available are out of Russia, and maybe that's why we've started to see them in the past 10 years uh, with more friendly relations between the former Soviet Union and the United States and more uh, Russian and uh, uh, other uh, Baltic state immigrants. The next one I want to talk to you about today is called flowering kints. Now, kints is often thought of in the great big uh, kints trees. They grow a very large fruit, uh, but they're a very large tree. The flowering kints is a lot smaller. It's a shrub. It uh, grows in the range of five to six feet. It's another one of these things that's just about bulletproof to uh, pests, especially in the United States, probably because the tree's not native to the United States. This is another uh, you know, Russian uh, Baltic Sea, Black Sea area native Um It'll produce a very good crop for you in the neighborhood of 20 uh, pounds of fruit per year, per shrub. So if you plant, you know, 10, I mean, I don't know that you'd need this many, but if you planted 10 of them, you get 20 pounds of fruit uh, per, per, uh, per, per shrub. So you're talking 200 pounds. That's uh, quite a yield for something that only grows five to six feet tall. It can be planted fairly close together so they form like a hedge line or a shrub line. Uh, they take about two to three years to start producing for you. They tend to produce in around September in most of the country. What do you do with them? Well, they have a real lemony flavor. They make a good lemon uh, juice substitute or a lemon syrup type substitute. So if you live in a part of the country where you go, man, I wish I could grow lemons and I can't, here is your uh, your substitute. And how far into the north can you grow them? All the way into zone three. But yet they'll grow throughout most of the country. They get a little bit uh, tired of the heat in the south, but with uh, good mulch base to keep the roots cool, give them a little bit. Of, you know, plant them strategically. Plant them in your garden so that they get mostly full sun, but they get a little bit of shade throughout some part of the day to give them a break, and they'll do just fine even down into the deep south. So this is another plant you look at and go, how many people say, I wish you could grow citrus, but it'll all die where I grow. And this thing grows in its own three. Most people have never heard of it. Have no idea what it is. So there's another one to put in your uh, your quiver, so to speak. And look, I don't expect you guys to go out and like buy one of every one of these things right away and plant them in your yards. A lot of people don't have room for it. What I'm trying to do is give you just that, more arrows in the quiver, more, uh, more options long term for what you can do. So uh, again, that would be the flowering kinch shrub. Check those guys out. Five to six feet, two to three years to harvest. Um, September harvest time, zone three hardy. What more could you ask for? And a lemon substitute. Another thing I think that uh, that gets overlooked is mountain ash. Now, mountain ash is all over the place, especially in the northern United States. It's a tree that most people would look at and go, well, what freaking use as far as, you know, being edible is mountain ash? Well, another thing we have to thank the Russians for is uh, European and Russian varieties of a mountain ash tree that have been specifically selected for uh, their fruit production. And they actually produce a lot of uh, fruit. 50 pounds per tree. 
is a typical yield from a mature mountain ash tree. Now, they're a large tree. They grow in a 12 to 15-foot range, but there is no reason you couldn't, with some pruning, keep that down to around 10 feet. Absolutely no reason whatsoever. Keeping the bulk of the fruit uh, available for uh, easy harvesting. They're also a great food for wildlife. So that stuff that's up there in the upper canopy that you can't get to, uh, you know, no problem for uh, leaving that for the birds, and they will enjoy eating it. Uh, So this is a tree, not a shrub like the other things we've talked about so far. But even as a tree, this thing doesn't take that long to start producing something you can use. In about three years after planting a grafted variety of mountain ash, uh, you will start to get a reasonable harvest off the tree uh, for both you and the uh, critters and the wildlife. Now, what do you do with mountain ash fruit? Uh, It's used to make wine. It's used for jams, and it's used for pastries throughout uh, Europe and uh, and the Russian uh, areas. So it can be used for all those things. It's also eaten fresh. It's considered, you know, something that people eat fresh once in a while, maybe one or two here or there. Not exactly something you sit down with a bowl full of and enjoy like you might strawberries or something. Uh, but it is not, you know, bitter or tart to the point where eating your fresh is out of the question. It's another one of those things that I look at and go, yeah, with the right beer, this would probably make a great adjunct to the brewing process. It would probably also make a really good mead and something unique and different. So, again, this is something that I'm looking forward to planting. It's more of a canopy-type tree on the edge of the, the mature forest that I already have in my place in Arkansas. I think it's going to be a great tree uh, for, for our use long term. And where's it hardy to, folks? Uh, zone 2. Zone 2. So anybody really out there can grow this, and it'll grow in the south. It won't have any problems growing in all but, like, the desert or, like, just the brutal, wide-open heat, uh, you know, nine months a year of baking heat. Uh, this tree will grow just about anywhere. So it's another one of those things that you just have to look at and go, with all the things that Americans grow and all these useless trees that we grow, these, you know, pistachios that have been bred not to produce pistachios, these, you know, pear trees that have been bred not to produce pear trees, oak trees that have been you know, bred not to produce acorns. Here we have this, this amazing tree, grows in its own too, produces something edible. Most people have no idea that mountain ash is useful for anything other than a timber crop. And it's not even that great as a timber crop. So, uh, again, I just say, you know, go out there and, and take a look at what's available. And not just the stuff that I'm going to give you today, but think about the other things that are available. And uh, a source for this, and I've heard some issues with their delivery. I've ordered from them. I haven't had any issues when I've ordered from them, but uh, somebody did. So, you know, kind of this is your, your word of warning. Rain Tree Nursery has just about everything I'm talking about today. I don't think there's anything here you can't get from Rain Tree. Maybe certain varieties of them you have to go to other sources, but Rain Tree offers everything here. So that might be a good source to check out, at least for more information. And I think the Rain Tree catalog, I've said this before, even if you don't want to order from Rain Tree Nursery, get their catalog. And uh, get on their mailing list, get their catalog. Every year, it is one of the best sources for information about these uh, these rare and unusual edible plants. The next one I want to talk about, though, grows right in our own backyards. It's a native to the United States, and I think it's a highly misunderstood tree. It's called a pawpaw. 
Uh, most people look at pawpaw and go, well, they take like 10 years to start producing. And that's true if you grow them from seedlings. But if you get good, strong, second, third year grafted varieties from a nursery, they will start to produce for you in about two to four years. A beautiful thing about pawpaws, a couple beautiful things. One, since they're native to much of the United States, they'll grow well in much of the United States. They're another very pest-free variety of tree. They have a good yield, around 30 pounds of fruit. The fruit has kind of a vanilla custard-like flavor. Uh, they're pretty much used just for eating. They can also be used for making a variety of other things, uh, including using them as adjunct and other things. But they're just a great fresh-eating fruit. Pretty much it's, a, it's vanilla custard that comes with its own bowl. You slice it in half. There's some big seeds in it. You toss those guys out with a spoon and eat. Uh, I mean, that's it's hard to beat something that's that simplistic in its ability to be used. They're very hardy. They're hardy up into Zone 5. They will grow into much of the south. You start getting down into south Texas, south Florida, places where it's really, really hot. Uh, they're going to have a lot of problems growing there. But most of the middle of the United States are going to do quite well for you. Harvest them around September, October, so they're kind of right in that typical fall harvest. Uh, so they're a great tree. Now, they do grow fairly large, 12 to 15 feet. But pruned and kept into the 8 to 10 foot range and grown in consort with larger trees that will eventually canopy over them, they're actually, you know, in nature an understory tree. So another reason that they have this uh, this, this mythological nature of taking 10 years to produce anything, uh, not just a seedling issue, but what people do is since they're an understory tree, they go and they part them, you know, plant them in, in shade. And what you're actually better off doing is plant them in a place where they're going to get a little bit of shade, but not too much when they're young. And as they get older and they get up into that 8 to 10 foot range, have larger trees that are eventually going to overtake them, planted behind them, and let them grow as understory trees after they've matured. Because in nature, because they're a relatively slow-growing tree, that's exactly how they end up, you know, kind of finding their place in a forest. They don't find their place in a mature forest. That's why we don't have them in all these places that we've allowed to regrow without providing some sort of seed stock. Or the places where they've been harvested out of, you haven't seen them come back if there's an existing canopy. They're a tree that ends up growing right next to a tree that's going to grow much larger and going to become the canopy, and they're going to become the understory. And over time, one takes the other over, but during the time they're both growing, they both get a lot of solar exposure. So if you're interested in growing pawpaws, those little pieces of information, start with good, solid, grafted rootstock. Look for a nursery that's providing trees that have been uh, on that rootstock for two years or more, and plant them in a place where they're going to get, in their early growing years, their first three years, good solar exposure, and you can look at fruit you know, off those trees in between two years if you're in the perfect place, four years at the maximum side, and then you're going to have a tree that will produce for years and years and years, and pawpaws will live for up to 50 years. They'll still be producing fruit for probably at that point for many of us, our children or our grandchildren. Okay, so the the next plant that we have to talk about is called aronia. And uh, Aronia may be the right way to say it. I'm not exactly sure of the pronunciation of this plant. This is a plant I'm not really familiar with. I've only read about it. I've never actually touched it. Uh, but it is something I want to plant and see how it does. I think I'm going to go ahead and uh, plant some of these guys up in Arkansas uh, early spring next year, even if I'm not going to be there with them. I'll figure out some level of uh, providing for their uh, irrigation uh, because they are a U.S. native plant. This is another plant that's right here 
here in our backyard, folks. And right now, people are growing it in Europe. People are growing it in Australia. And those great, huge uh, uh, food forests down there in you know Australia and their subtropic regions, where they're growing all these trees and plants, and we go, well, we can't grow that. We can't grow that. We can't grow this. And you know, guavas is too cold, and all this other stuff. Well, they're they're bringing in aronia. And they're growing it in these subtropical regions, but yet it's it's native here, and it will handle temperatures in the zone three. And and all these other people are growing this plant, and we sit here and go, you know, what is an aronia? We don't even know what it is. Well, it's a it's a shrub again. They only grow three to six feet tall, so they're a great edge plant if you're doing like a permaculture layer system, or if you're doing a garden where you want to have you know permaculture crops mixed in with your annuals, and you don't want them so high that they're going to shade everything out uh, and eventually canopy over your garden. They're a good uh, product for doing that with. Almost completely pest free. Nothing really seems to eat an aronia except people when they know to do it. They're a decent yield. They produce about 10 pounds per plant. Now, when you think about a shrub that's only 3 to 6 feet tall and a relatively small berry, that's a fairly good yield. They actually are sort of cranberry-like in their flavor from my understanding, except they're not the color of a cranberry. They're more of a purple. Uh, they're used for juices, preserves. They're often also eaten fresh. So that is another good use for them as I pass this massive truck that's probably making a lot of background noise. They begin to produce in only two years after they're planted. Uh, they have some tolerance for drought once established. And to top it all off, they have a gorgeous fire red fall color. So again, this is one of these plants that you have to look at and go, what what more could you ask for? You have a cranberry substitute uh, that can be used for everything from uh, juice to jams, preserves to fresh. And if you can use it for juice, then you know you can use it for wine or a beer or a meat adjunct. Uh, somewhat drought tolerant, hardy in the zone three, grown all over the world and appreciated by gardeners that grow plants that we just can't even think about growing, and they're growing this too. Gorgeous fall color, and most Americans don't even know what they are. So there's another one. They also, uh, you know, my understanding is that even though these bushes are three to six feet tall, they're not very large, so their actual yield for space is huge, massive yields. Let's move on to another one. Let's stop beating up on us for not realizing when it's our own backyard. Let's go back to the Russians and say, okay, comrades, what else do you got for us? Well, the Russians have gifted us with another beautiful plant called honeyberry. Honeyberry looks a lot like a long... kind of weird shaped kind of cylindrical blueberry it's actually a variety of honeysuckle being from Russia and including parts of Siberia you might imagine it's pretty hardy how about zone 2 hardy zone 2 that's pretty freaking cold and yet, it will handle a lot of stuff in the south. You give it some mottled shade throughout the day. Think about it strategically where you plant it. Make sure it's mulched well. Make sure you keep the roots cool at the hottest part of the summer, and you keep it irrigated. And it'll grow right into the south for you. In fact, it'll grow faster in the south than in the north. It might have lower yields the first couple of years until you really get a root system established so it gets enough water in the heat. But it'll grow just about any 
anywhere. Um, since it's a variety of honeysuckle, it has beautiful, fragrant flowers. It's another one of these uh, deciduous shrubs, so that in the in the wintertime, it loses its leaves. It provides a great color. Um, it'll start producing in only one to two years. It'll yield 10 to 15 pounds per plant. It tastes pretty much like a blueberry, so anything you can do with a blueberry, including uh, one of my favorite things in the world, blueberry wheat beer, uh, you can do with this. It'll make you know, blueberry jams. Pretty much anything you do with a blueberry, you can do with this. But they're a fairly large, long berry. They're a lot less uh, tedious to go out and pick than blueberries. And a lot more adaptable as far as soil than blueberries. From Mother Russia, from our comrades, uh, they have brought us another great little plant. So maybe we need to uh, let go some of that cold wear out of moss. <laughs> it might still be around with some people with all these good things they're bringing us. I'm about to tell you about another plant that's come out of Russia that really bears consideration for us to use in our permaculture techniques. And that's the gumi or gawumi. Uh, Gomi or Gomi. I don't know how you say it. I really don't. I've never heard that anybody that actually knew for a fact how to pronounce this thing to pronounce it. It makes me think of Gumi like Gumi bears. Um, these things grow five to six feet. Again, pest free. Uh, yield of 10 to 15 pounds per plant of fruit. They are a shrub, uh, so again, something you can maintain in that five to six foot range. Two years to harvest, so they're relatively short term to the point where you start to be able to harvest things. The harvest comes in July, as does the uh, the honeyberry. So June, July harvest for both of these plants. So if you're you know getting most of your harvest in the fall, these are two plants that you can kind of put some spring summer harvest in to spread out over the the seasons more of what you're getting. Gummies have like a pie cherry taste is the best way I can describe it. Very hearty, hearty in the zone four, in fact, uh, which is not as hearty as the uh, the honeyberry, but that'll cover most of the United States. That's in the most of Colorado. That's in the most of the Dakotas. You know, a lot of the Dakotas anyway, not the, the really cold parts of the Dakotas, but a lot of the Dakotas. That's into a lot of Montana, Wyoming. I mean, so this is a very diverse plant as well. Uh, basically, anything you would do with a pie cherry, you can do with these. Again, I immediately turned my uh, aspirations to, boy, that would make a really interesting uh, wheat beer. Uh, something that's maybe a lambic clone using the uh, the tartness of the cherries to create uh, the tartness in the ale. Uh, obviously, anything you would cook with a pie cherry, you could cook, and they're not so tart that you can't eat them fresh, so they're another great little tree, uh, or little shrub, I guess, that you can kind of shape to be, look like a little tree. And again, at 10 to 15 pounds per per plant, if you planted maybe two varieties of these things side by side, you're looking at 20 to 30 pounds of harvest from two relatively small plants that, again, at five to six feet, if you strategically place them within you know the area you're growing your annual vegetables, they can be right in that zone, zone one area. Add diversity to your harvest, and I think that if they taste like a tart cherry, if you were to slice a few of them up and toss them into a summer salad, that would probably pretty be pretty awesome. Another thing that's done with them is they're, they're sweetened with sugar and then dried like a raisin. So they would make a great uh, trail mix additive, and they preserve very well that way. So, again, one of these things has just got so many things going for it, and most Americans have never heard.
heard of it, and it's something that you can add to your landscape here or there, whether you have a large piece of land or a small piece of land. You know, these last couple ones, Honeyberry and, and Gumi and Aronia, they can go in, you know, maybe not all of them, but one or two of them in just about every backyard in America. We can have more diverse production. The last one I want to tell you about is something that I think is really important for us as long-term survivalists from the standpoint of making sure we get a good supply of vitamin C. And for permaculturists, because it actually produces nitrogen in the soil, even though it's not actually a legume. It's called sea berry. It's also referred to as sea buckthorn. It'll grow from uh, 6 to 8 feet in height. It has huge yields up in the 30-pound range per plant uh, for a relatively straight-growing shrub. It is a nitrogen fixer. Uh, so it's very useful. You could plant it throughout your landscape to fix nitrogen, and it's pretty easy to propagate yourself once you get a mature, a couple mature plants to work with. This is a plant where you do have to worry about planting a male and a female variety, uh, but one male will pollinate quite a few females as long as you keep proximity reasonable. So it's very good from a standpoint of being able to spread out and use in many places. If you grow, you know, more than you need. And then over time, you simply cut several of them out. What you'll do is all the nitrogen they fixed in the soil that was part of the root system will be released in the soil for other plants. So they're very good for kind of a a chop and drop technique that the permaculturists uh, tend to use. And they usually use legumes for it that aren't really, uh, a lot of them won't grow in North America in these northern climates. They're they're tropical, subtropical plants, a lot of these legume trees. Uh, So this is kind of a good substitute for that. Now, what about the fruit that they produce, this huge variety of fruit? Uh, it's a juice that's mainly what they're used for. You can eat them fresh. It's not going to hurt you or anything, but they're just not the most uh, enjoyable thing to eat fresh. But squeezed and sweetened, they make a reasonable orange juice substitute. Uh, they are high in vitamin C. How high? Seven times higher in vitamin C than lemons. So with some sea berry juice stored up, you could get all of the vitamin C you would ever need. So even in a paw environment, if everything is breaking down and, you know, people are actually worried about scurvy, which I think is overblown to worry about scurvy. If you eat a, a good diet, like we're always talking about as preppers, mixed with uh, with legumes and rice and beans and pastas that are stored up, plus all this stuff from your, your garden, you're not going to have a vitamin C deficiency. But having a, a surplus of vitamin C is certainly good for warding off a lot of colds and viruses and flus and for immune boosting. And this plant's been used as that for thousands of years. Hardy in the zone three. Harvest time is the June, uh, July to August harvest time. So they, they mean this is another one of these plants that people just, you know, most people have never heard of. The, the, the uh, foliage is kind of a silver green. Uh, it kind of reminds you a little bit of the way an artichoke looks, but more green in it than that, to give you an idea of what this looks like. Beautiful, bright orange berries. Uh, wildlife absolutely loves them. Totally pest-free. Nothing eats the aronia plant plant, the only thing that the wildlife will come to is eat the berries, and you'll probably, with one or two plants, have more of it than you really want or need. So another great plant, and again, on top of everything else going for it, nitrogen fixer. So you can use it in permaculture efforts to improve soil.
again, it's one of these things I look at and I just say, well, what more could you want? The last thing I want to talk to you is something you've heard about a million times. Most people probably eat quite a few of them every single month, buy them in the supermarket. They're apples. So what's the big deal about an apple? Well, one thing I'd like you to consider, growing on some of your property, even if you have large property, this is another one of these things that you can bring into the areas you normally wouldn't bring fruits into that will be close in that, that zone one area for permaculture, the stuff that you maintain and kind of dote on every day, is a mini dwarf apple. Mini dwarf apples will grow into the two to four foot range, and basically when they first start producing apples, if you want them higher than, let's say your trees kind of start to make a little tiny canopy at three feet, it starts to produce apples, you've got to cut them off to get it to go up to four feet. Once it starts producing apples and you let it start producing apples, it stops its vertical growth and it'll start to, to, to move outward. They kind of look like, if you know, after about 10 years of really taking care of them, they look like a giant Bonzi tree because they get really thick and gnarly looking. They look like an old, a very old apple tree would look, only much, much smaller, and they get to that look a lot faster. Now, they do take, you know, two to four years to start producing, and if you if you're really going to want to do it where they're going to produce maximum production for their size, you want to go ahead and make it take four years for them. There are another thing that's available from Rain Tree and a lot of other sources. Now, with apples, you need to plant several varieties, at least two, to get cross-pollination. And, and the real thing with apples is it's not that, like, variety A is not compatible with variety B for cross-pollination, but you need apples that bloom at the same time. Because if they're not, you know, if one blooms and then three weeks and then the blossoms fall off, and a week after the blossoms fall off, the other variety blooms, it doesn't matter how compatible they are uh, from, from a pollen standpoint. They didn't have the opportunity. So that's another thing that keeps a lot of Americans from growing apples. Limited space. Don't have a lot of room. So since I need two or three varieties, I need two or three of these huge trees. And even a semi-dwarf apple is a fairly large tree. Well, these mini-dwarfs, you could plant them throughout your entire property in Zone 1. And at four feet, they provide very minimal actual shade, especially if you think about where you plant them in relation to your other crops. They're also at that size, you know, if you went in and once they were established, planted three or four or five pole beans of different varieties around them, they make a great little trellis for your pole beans to grow up and grow out. And, and at the same time, those beans are going to be providing fruit or uh, nitrogen for the apple trees. You could even let them grow up, and some of them you may not even let go to seed once they get up and they just start to bud out, go ahead and cut them off in the ground. And all that nitrogen goes right down there in the soil. Everything's taking care of itself, and bean seeds are cheap. And you can do that year after year after year and really build up uh, a, a mini orchard. And these mini dwarfs are actually used in certain uh, orchards in France, and they per acre will outproduce standard orchards because they can be more easily uh, managed, maintained, kept free of pests. All the things that plague an apple tree up in the upper canopy where we can't even get to, we can take care of relatively quickly on a mini dwarf tree, including doing things to keep uh, things that like to like worms that like to go in and damage the apple away with things like uh, well apple netting and other things like that are just easier to do. So that kind of wraps up uh, all the things that I had to give you today. I hope it's kind of taken you on a little mini whirlwind tour of what's available for permaculture. And as I finish today, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about why I'm so big on this this agriculture permaculture thing. 
I really believe that our biggest environmental-based threat going forward to the human population is not global warming. And I'm not going to beat that one again because that's become a dead horse here, I think. But that's the one everybody's looking at. But if it's true because we're doing it or it's true because the climate's doing it, doesn't really matter. It is affecting, on some levels, the big problem, the big environmental problem. But it's only one little component that's aggravating this. The population explosion is continuing. Despite what's being done in China to, to limit population explosion, I remember back in grade school, that country had 1.1 billion people, right at 1 billion. And they're at like 1.6 billion people now. So they've, they've, they're almost 2 billion. It's trying to control their population. The population of India is over a billion. And a lot of these other nations that are slowly moving into more self-sustenance things are still at very high birth rates because the death rates have been high in the past. So a lot of these kind of like third world nations that are just finally starting to cross the path and come over to the other side with more modernization and technique are going to continue to see their populations explode because more of them are going to survive those early years and they're death rate is going down. That human population explosion coupled with soil erosion soil erosion the unpredictability of our climate up or down in temperature, it doesn't matter and the depletion of the water supplies that are actually available for crop irrigation using this monoculture agriculture techniques spells one thing for our future and only one thing and that is eventually a shortage of food for the entire planet. Now we've already seen that happen like six Six of the last nine years, there's been a, a shortage of grain in the world. And we haven't even really hit a place where the problem is evident yet. And say what you want about monoculture, agriculture, and ammonium nitrate fertilizers, but they're what has let the population of the planet get to where it is. They've saved millions and millions, dare I say billions of lives, but they've also created billions of lives that would never have occurred in the past. And this was the big, what they called the Green Revolution, and they didn't mean it environmentally, the green. They meant in green as in, you know, agriculture is, is plants, so they're green. That occurred after World War One, and then really blew up after World War Two, as they started realizing all this ammonium nitrate that they were using to make explosives could actually be used to uh, to make fertilizer. And yields per acre exploded, and then we started using more and more modern techniques uh, to irrigate our crops. But what happened is now our production is growing at one to two percent a year. And the world population is grossly exceeding the growth in production. So all we need is one bad year. One bad year globally where our food production drops by 3 or 4% and our population continues to rise at 6 to 8%. And in that one year, we'll have an immense problem on our hands. Long term, the problem is going to come and it's only going to get worse. And at this point, from the government standpoint, from the agricultural corporation standpoint, from all the things that the people that never think about this rely on to keep them fed, there's absolutely nothing that can be done about it. If we keep doing things the way that we've always done them, there is nothing that can be done. The only result that we're going to have are food shortages, and eventually we're going to have wars over food. And I don't know whether or not the United States will be directly involved with them. I'm not playing Nostradamus here. But I am telling you that nation will rise against nation when one nation has food and the other nation is starving. 
it will happen. And when the nations with the military hardware to make war and make it efficiently 21st century style have shortages of food, they will pick the nations that have a large food supply and not much military defense, and they will go into them. They will find a political reason or excuse to initiate warfare. The United States is not the only country that makes up reasons to go to war. Trust me, all nations do it. Historically, the nation that does the invading tends to win the war nine times out of ten. There's a reason one nation invades another preemptively. It improves their odds of winning a war that they see will come sooner or later. You know, that's just a fact of history. You can check that one out if you want to. But one way or another, we are going to be in the food shortages. And the only way to save everybody is for everybody to start doing something for the damn selves and to start produce for their damn selves. And the, and the big thing I want to drive home is the first year that you try to grow stuff, you're going to have problems. You may not get diddly the first year you do it. You will have to learn how to deal with the situations on your property, in your region, and the weather that comes up this year's weather in Texas has been nuts. We got late freezes. We got three and a half, four weeks of straight rain and overcast. The sun's finally shining today. I've been doing it here for four years now, and this this year I don't have any production from summer fall or summer crops yet or even spring crops yet. I have a very well-established garden. I have a few berries coming out of the strawberry planter already. I've been able to pick a handful of blueberries. I've got figs on my fig tree. I've got my plants looking pretty good now that the sun's out, but it was hard this year. And part of it, and I've got peaches all over the peach tree, but they're just not ready yet, and they're not going to be ready for a couple months. So even with an experienced gardener, and I've been putting more effort in this year. My production has been basically green so far that have been held over through and from the winter and some, some stuff that came out of the greenhouse. So you're going to have adversity. So you have to start somewhere. You have to get through the adversity, and you have to adapt to your local climate. You have to adapt and figure out what varieties are going to do best. And it's going to take you time. And that's why I put so much effort into this. Because, yeah, it takes 10 years for certain trees to get really big and beautiful and really produce masts. Every year you don't plant one, it takes an extra year. And what I mean by that is you can go, well, I don't know why I would plant a chestnut tree in 12 years. Well, you don't plant one this year, you plant one next year. Now from the time you had the thought to the time you have chestnuts, it's 13 years. You wait another year, it's 14. You wait another year, it's 15. The trees that will produce for you in five years, you wait another year, it's six. You wait another year, it's seven. You wait another year, it's eight. Go get the tree and plant it. And one of the reasons I've been talking about dwarf apples, I'm going to do the same thing with dwarf apples I've done with dwarf peaches. I'm going to go out and get some of them. I'm going to get them delivered before it gets too hot to get them delivered. I'm going to plant them in large containers. I'm going to take good care of them until we move, and I'm going to take them with me when we go. One way or another, I'm getting started on doing this stuff, even the stuff that I know is really for kind of my next move. And I encourage you to do the same thing. Start building up seed banks. Uh, start learning how to propagate. I'm going to do some shows. Uh, I'm going to do a show this week talking about the fact that, you know, I didn't realize, realize this up till now. You can never start a tomato seed again and perpetually produce tomatoes for damn near the rest of your life using cloning. By taking your late crops and cloning them for next year. You can take blueberry bushes and you can create rootstock on existing plants and you can expand your blueberry bushes for eternity. You can take a hundred strawberry plants and produce a thousand more plants in one year. There's ways to do that. Start learning them now because there may come a day 
when you're very survival. If not, at least your very comfort depends on it. And if nothing goes wrong, if I'm completely wrong about this, you won't regret doing it and becoming more self-sufficient and more independent from the systems. This has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. You can scream and you can holler It really doesn't matter Cause it all gets spent